Garrity Motors is a beloved local institution in Dillon, Texas, but even beloved local institutions need an online space. And that's where Squarespace comes in. Whether you need a landing page, a professional blog, or an online store, Squarespace allows you to create a custom platform where you make your latest goals into a reality. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code BINGE, that's B-I-N-G-E, to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, make your next move. Welcome back to Entertainment Weekly's Binge of Friday Night Lights. I'm slamming Sammy Highfill. And I'm not Mr. Sandman, but I am Mr. Franman. It's me, Darren Franich. All right, guys. So we have already taken you through the pilot of this beloved series. That means that we are on to the biggest season. It's a big undertaking. It's going to be very exciting. The first season of Friday Night Lights where we are going to be breaking down all of the biggest moments in the main characters' lives. We will be talking about that Mr. Sandman moment. We will not be calling it the Mr. Franman moment. And, of course, I feel like the best way to kick things off is with the love triangle of this season, of this series, if you will. Well, of certain seasons, I suppose, which is Tim Riggins, Jason Street, and Lila Garrity. Now, Episode three is kind of when all of this really starts, and it's also a freaking fantastic episode. It is titled Wind Sprints. Darren, I know this is one of your favorites. You know, Sam, uh, on the rewatch, uh, my girlfriend and I were watching Wind Sprints, and the end of that episode is just so the creation of Tim Riggins as an icon. We have seen him just as this totally rugged good old boy. We've started to get a sense of the mystery and the melancholy that powers him but after that incredible moment with the rest of the team doing wind sprints the rain is just coming down it just feels so mythic he's walking home you know Lila who's just been so the picture of this kind of perfect cheerleader all-american girl she's kind of out of sorts and I just love something about the furiosity with which they first kiss each other it just feels as if it's a moment that the show can do like very well, which is just like all this emotion that's been building up just kind of explodes. And I I think that Tim Riggins is a character who sticks around through the whole run of this show one way or another. And I feel as if in a lot of respects, season one is really just showing us certain aspects of him that will become important. But for me, that's kind of like my just vivid memory of me being like, oh, like this is the guy who just stands for so much on the show. Um, What are your kind of memories of the first time watching that scene? And, you know, what was it like rediscovering how they established the, the romantic triangle in season one? I think to this day that that scene when they're all when they're literally running wind sprints not to keep repeating the title of this episode but that's what they're doing they're running up a hill in the mud torrential downpour it is home to one of the greatest clear eyes full hearts moments because coach taylor has these guys he pulled them out of their homes he's torturing them i mean running through mud is not fun if anyone has ever i have a lot of experience doing it because i right <laughs> now i'm just kidding i ran through sand once and it was hard so i'm assuming no there's this great moment moment where a coach is he's testing his team and he's testing their spirit and their will and whether they want to be champions and have what it takes and he kind of gets to this moment where he doesn't 
it's this awkward pause where he's waiting for someone to step up and it's Smash who steps up and he starts the Clear Eyes Full Hearts and basically volunteers them to continue running after Coach Taylor might have been done torturing them. And it's kind of this beautiful moment where Coach stands there and like the players are like hitting him pretty hard when they pass him to run up this hill. But it's so moving. And I feel like it was the first instance where we saw the heart of this team and why they could potentially get to state and just how good they could be, not just skill-wise, but just in their drive. And then, of course, that leads to Coach confronting Riggins. And whenever Riggins is emotional, I'm emotional. There's rain. There's also tears. He's blaming himself for Street's injury. It's very upsetting. And then, as you mentioned, Lila pulls over. And that leads to the first Lila Riggins kiss, which I agree I also really like. It's not a traditional first kiss. It's almost, I don't know if violence the right word, but it's very rough. But there's very much so this sense of we should not be doing this, but we can't help ourselves that I really enjoy. And I feel like it is the perfect kicking off of that triangle because it's they know it's wrong but boy oh boy is there some passion there absolutely and i think it's a real testament to taylor kitsch as an actor that we don't hate him immediately for doing this because one of the things i love so much about how they kind of play out this triangle and how this season plays out is that you know it becomes clear very early that we are not leaving jason street behind far from it you know like this is a show that you know it seems as if there's a glib way to treat a character like him, which would be, well, like, you know, he's no longer really a part of our focus anymore because he's no longer on the team. And quite the opposite. I was just struck in these early episodes by how much we are with him every step of the way. I mean, you know, we see him in the early episodes just in what seems to me like a realistic portrayal of someone who has just lost the use of his legs. And we see how Scott Porter very dexterously, I think, tracks the kind of gradual you know, he's going through physical therapy, he's gradually getting back more use of his body, but he's also, you just feel that he is this supernova of physicality who's kind of being held in check. And I I always just find that to be really remarkable that the show paid that much attention to the character. Um, We talked a little bit to Scott Porter about how he prepared physically for this part, which is just, of course, more than anything, a very physical performance to have on a TV show. I went down two weeks before pretty much the rest of the cast and spent a lot of time with people who had suffered catastrophic spinal injuries. Met a young man, and I'll, I'll keep their names uh, private, but met a young man who had just earned his pro bull riding card. And in his first meet after he turned 18, when he could legally compete, uh, was bucked in the pin and caught his head between two steel bars. And it was just seeing, first of all, the emotional impact, and then seeing how his family related to him, and seeing how his grandmother refused to believe that he would never walk again, and seeing how he came to grips with his injury first, uh, and then everyone else, you know, had to kind of adjust. You know, I met a a 25-year-old man who had gotten a big promotion at work, and him and his girlfriend went out to to celebrate by buying a big TV, and 25-year-old, you feel like you're invincible, you're the strongest guy in the world, he picked the TV up and carried it upstairs himself, came back down to the truck to uh, grab the rest of the groceries that they had picked up as well and sat down on the steps and never stood up again. And so I, I you know, talked to these guys and, and got to know these young men and, and young women that I met. And uh, before I did anything physically, just got a sense of who they were. And there's a line in the show 
that that young man said to me, the, the bull rider, he said, everybody in my family wants me to be who I was before the injury, but I'm just trying to be a better man than I was before. And it, it was, it just struck me. It, and, it, and I, I told Jason uh, Tatum's and, and some of the writers about that line. And it actually ends up going into the show when Jason proposes to Lila. I don't want to be the man I was before my injury. I, I want to be a better man in spite of it. And so getting to know the emotional side of it was super important. Then the physical aspect came of it when, when I met coach James Gumbert, who's one of the originators of wheelchair rugby. He's the coach of our Paralympic wheelchair rugby team. Uh, he coaches the guys that were in the murder ball documentary. I mean, he is, he's an amazing man, amazing man. And uh, he let me into the world of wheelchair rugby. He let me into the world of, of, uh, and we also, I also had a, an occupational therapist, Rob, that, that was just amazing too. And having the two of them as kind of my, my onset kind of technical advisors uh, to constantly be there and say, no, these are the things that don't work with your body. These are the things that would work. This is what would be challenging for you. You know, having the two of them involved with me and, and welcome me, uh, welcoming me in with open arms. I mean, Coach Gumby, when I go to, I go to practice with these, world champion gold medal Paralympians and I'd, I'd get in my chair and I'd go out onto the court to play wheelchair rugby but these guys I mean it's like playing football with Joe Montana and Jerry Rice it's, you know it's like playing basketball with Patrick Ewing and and Michael Jordan you know it's and I'm going up and I'm playing with these and he would turn to everybody and go okay folks we got a walkie on the court you know he'd call me a walkie and I'd go out and you know he would just school me and then one day we we went out and uh, I went to a UT football game with them. I got in a chair for a little while. You know, it was before the show even was released. So people didn't know who I was and just treated me like I was a guy in a wheelchair. And I got a unique perspective there as well. So it was a lot of research, but it was so amazing to see and to get to know people that I may never have known. And to have my life be impacted with them was, was incredibly special. So it's kind of how we went about the whole emotional stuff first and then the physical aspects of it uh, later. He mentioned playing wheelchair rugby, which obviously becomes a big part of Jason Street's life. It's his new sport of choice, if you will, after he can no longer play football. And that brings us to another big point in the love triangle this season, which I will forever remember the moment Jason Street has figured out that Tim Riggins, and I don't know why I'm using full names. I'm going to go back to being like a cool fan. Street finds out that Riggs and Lyle... And Elila have kissed, and it's this wonderful confrontation. You don't know how he's going to react, what he's going to feel, and he punches Riggins in the face after one of his wheelchair rugby games, and he gives this amazing performance about, you know, the line is something to the effect of, you won't punch a cripple, but you'll steal a cripple's girl. And I just, ugh, every time. It's so good, but I love that they... They didn't change. The injury never changed who Jason Street was at his core. He's still going to be the guy who, if you kiss his girl, he's going to punch you in the face and he's going to confront you about it. And I think that's one of the best things they did about how they handled this transition for him. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, what's great, too, is that so often, you know, any romantic triangle like this 
there's a simpler way to play it where Street is just a victim or where anyone involved is somehow very clearly doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. And what I like about, you know, the after effect of that scene that you just described, which in context is so wrenching. I mean, this is like, these are three characters who care so much about each other. And even before Riggins and Lila start sleeping together, you're very aware that there's sort of a like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid menage a trois happening here. Like there's a deep love between all three of them even before that love becomes physical and and so I, I just think that the way it flows out from there you know there's that great episode where you see how the school is reacting and how you know no matter how difficult it is for Riggins that the school is basically fully scarlet lettering Lila and I, I love the exploration of that and I love how there's an aspect to how Scott Porter plays a lot of those scenes where as much as you are on street side, you're also kind of like, you know, there's this supreme punishment sense that, you know, you 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 want him to kind of dial it back a little bit. And, you know, I, I just think that the way in which that triangle plays out is interesting. Now, I'd be intrigued to know, Sam, just on a grander level, because this, these are relationships that will continue on through the show. Team Riggs or Team Street when it comes to Lila Garrity? <laughs> uh, you know, this is going to surprise absolutely no no one. I am Team Riggins. I am a diehard Riggins Lila shipper. I just, I think their dynamic is so interesting. You know, it's a little bit to the effect of opposites attract in a lot of ways, but the things he brings out in her make her more likable for me as a character. I like it when Lila gets her hands a little dirty and kind of loosens her ponytail if you actually literally and figuratively um and for Riggins you know I think he has that heart and he has that good in him but she does help to bring it out and so for me Street and Lila were always a little bit too cookie cutter they're very much so that couple that we all know in high school that wins best couple in this yearbook superlatives and goes on and Maybe gets married, maybe doesn't, but it's just their relationship is really sweet and it's really great, but it's just not kind of the epic thing that I'm into when I'm watching television. I, what about you? I well, like I, I totally agree, and you know it goes back to you know we were talking last week about uh, Coach Taylor's speech at the end of the pilot and kind of this idea that's so central to this season and the show on a grand scale that when you kind of undergo a tragedy or a calamity or you have to kind of deal with you know something in your life not going the way you were expecting it to that can be a, a very revealing thing for a person for a team for a community and there's just this aspect to what Lila and Riggins bring out in each other that to me it's a true deepening of their characters now you know all that being said we'll be talking a lot about them going forward as their relationship sort of continues down its sort of you know sine cosine wave of things going well and, and things going not so well but I, I want to just talk a little bit about again the attention paid to Jason Street's journey and how we see him just really begin to expand his life Figure out what he does now that he's not necessarily going to be, he can no longer be the great football player that he wanted to be. What does that mean? And what I think is interesting is that the show takes very seriously the idea, as you said, that he may not be a football player, but the fire is still there and his passion is still there. And his passion for everything in his life is is still there. You know, we, could, we sort of see him, one of my kind of favorite moments in the show is when he goes down to try out for uh, going to the Paralympics, you know, you know to, to, to try 
tried for the national team. I love that he becomes one of the best players in the nation <laughs> within the span of, like, I think three months. I just think that that is fully believable to me for how the character plays out. And then what's interesting is that then we see him ultimately in a way that, like, I love how the show earns him coming back to the football team in a coaching capacity. Like, you would think him and Saracen would interact very early. And instead, the show really builds up to that interaction. And I love that kind of slow build. And, you know, obviously along the way, there are instances where he's at odds with the coach and that kind of return is really lovely. Um, But we talked a little bit to Scott Porter about, you know, tracking Jason's or discovering that fire uh, within himself and how that plays out in the season. Like, there's one scene in particular that was amazing to me because it was very triumphant. And it was the scene where uh, Jason teaches Saracen how to throw a deep out route. And it's the first time that it was me and Gaius and Zach and Taylor all on a field together since the pilot. And it was important for me in a lot of ways because that first season, I really kind of fought off a little bit of homesickness. And I don't want to say depression. It wasn't depression, but it was something similar where everyone would go to work and they would go shoot at a school and they would go to the football field and they would shoot scenes together. And I would go to a hospital room by myself and shoot a scene if I was lucky with one other actor. And uh, Kevin Rankin, who played Herc, was a godsend for me. So all of our scenes together were, were amazing. But that, that scene with the four of us kids back on the football field and me teaching him how to throw that route, they shot Jason in such a way that he looked like he was standing again almost. And, and in his head, he was. He was finding a new fire, something that was really fantastic for him to be able to to, to get into again. And, and that was kind of the coaching aspect of it. Sam, uh, I, I want to shift gears away from uh, one quarterback and talk a little bit about a quarterback who has his own struggles uh, in season one. Matt Saracen. Zach Guilford has some moments early in the season they are kind of, for me, what I think a lot of people, the Al Pacino speech in Any Given Sunday is. Like, <laughs> they're just these moments that inspire me. Um, one of them being at the end of episode two. We're already kind of seeing how the show is not just going to kind of be like a game of the week type of series. You know, episode two is really all about the fallout from the pilot and the build up to the next episode. And everyone just kind of doubts that Matt Saracen, you know, there's the rumor that he had his eyes closed when he threw the football, which there's a moment at the end where he says, like, no, my eyes were wide open. Uh, you know, there's the moment at the end of episode four when he has been literally and figuratively beaten up by everyone in town, and he's still practicing. And what's great is that the show establishes very quickly that no matter how good he is, everyone just doubts him. And those doubts really kind of get reflected in the the decision by the boosters and by Coach Taylor to bring in a new quarterback, a quarterback somewhat unsubtly named Voodoo. Um, (laughs) I I have to kind of say, Sam, I do think the show's treatment of Voodoo is kind of strange. He kind of very much brings in this idea of the football player as someone who is in it for himself. There's something very mercenary about him. We learned that his family, uh, you know, they are essentially Katrina refugees. This show really depends a lot on characters who, like, love the idea of Dylan as a community. Voodoo is very much like, I need to just kind of do this to get to a good college. And I I do kind of think the show demonizes him just a little bit in that way, you know? Like, I I always kind of wish that there was more to his character than just kind of being this level boss for Matt Saracen to kind of triumph over. But how do you kind of feel about how how that dynamic kind of plays out? Yeah, I feel as if they tried to 
establish a little bit like make this character a little bit more dimensional by giving the Katrina backstory by finding out that he misses his home and he doesn't like Texas because Texas isn't his home and he is just trying to get to the next stage in his career but he is also trying to do it for his family and I so I think there were underlying ideas that really would have worked to humanize this guy but they didn't show them enough. Yeah. It was stated once. We saw that he was living out of a motel room once. And then that was it. It was just him showing up at a party and arguing with Smash about the music. And it was him just being a jerk about anything and everything. And I think they would have had to show more of his home life for us to really empathize with this character and to have him be more than just a villain. But I also think the way that he, spoiler, comes back in the finale almost justifies him being just a villain for me because that's all I needed. Seeing him in the finale, I was like, it's voodoo, they have to win. And so that and that level, I think it really worked. This first season has so many great actors who kind of come in for a short stint. I mean, again, this is like a huge season of television, the kind of thing they barely make anymore. And so just to call out Aldous Hodge, who plays Voodoo, I think just brings a real great force to the show. And I I do think it's interesting, and this is kind of a conversation that the show is constantly having with itself going forward. I mean, as much as it is cynical in some respects about football, and certainly every single scene in season one with Buddy Garrity is kind of this beautiful expression of this cockeyed take on the wonder of high school football. The show does feel quite passionately that to be in it for yourself and to be entirely focused on yourself, whether that's as a football player or as a person in a family, a person in a community, that that is somehow wrong. And I I do like how Matt Saracen is not as good of a quarterback as Voodoo. And and the show clearly thinks that, you know, but he is a better teammate. And I I think that that's an interesting thing to bring in. And, you know, just to think about Matt Saracen's journey this season – Sometimes what I forget about this show, because it's so good at so many things, is that it's also just a great teen show. And I think that like the the careful way the relationship between him and Julie develops is really, really interesting. You know, how do you kind of feel about how that plays out over the course of the season between those two characters, Sam? Well, we all know that I did not love their first interaction because Julie was rude. But but I have also stated that I do I do like these two as a couple. And to your point about it being a really good high school show, the handling of this relationship is so authentic. It's like on one end you have Riggins and Lila who are these star-crossed, ridiculously beautiful, passionate – Things that never happen in high school. Like, I'm sorry. I don't pull over to the side of the road and kiss the guy I have a secret crush on in the middle of the rain. I wish I did. But Julie and Matt and the treatment of their characters, from the moment where he realizes, you know, he has a crush on her to one of my favorite moments, which is when um, Coach Taylor accidentally tells Matt to get his daughter, like, in the back of a in the back seat of a car which is at Julie's dance recital which again feels very young just everything these two characters are doing separately how awkward they are together how they don't really know how to express their feelings when they should go on a date if they're going on a date should we talk about sex just everything they handle is 
so great and just feels just almost too authentic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I couldn't agree more. And again, like, what you're saying about the fact that we're following that relationship while we're also following the street Riggins-Lila relationship, it's almost as if something like Beverly Hills 90210, this really wonderful and somewhat over-the-top version of high school, it's like if that is happening in the same show, often one scene away from something more like my so-called life, you know? Something gets just a little bit more, you know, human. And, you know, you kind of mentioned there's the great episode where Julie says that they think they should have sex and just the awkwardness with which that plays out and, you know, Landry sort of pretending that he knows anything at all about what Matt should do and Matt being nervous. And we start to see here the very thoughtful way in which, you know, Coach Taylor and Tammy Taylor will talk to their daughter about these things. And nothing about that feels TV-like. You know, nothing feels special episode-y. It just feels like characters who are kind of trying to make sure that, you know, their daughter is okay. And, I mean, you know, we're talking so much about Matt Sarazen's relationship with one lady. So, Sam... We got to talk about the character, maybe the most important character in the show. Who knows? We'll talk about this more. Grandma Saracen. This whole ep- uh. this this whole show could just be us listing off the best Grandma Saracen lines from from this season. <laughs> uh, Grandma Saracen. I have to say, Luann Stevens is. I want to say one of the most underappreciated, but I think for anyone who watches this show, they fully appreciate her performance. The entire relationship between Matt and his grandmother is one of the more moving things this show does. And the way to kind of tie these together is it's on his first date with Julie that he has to come home and help deal with his poor grandma who has locked herself in a bathroom or a closet or wherever she is and poor Landry doesn't know what to do and you get to see exactly why Matt is the way he is and why he's so patient with things and willing to work hard because you see him what he deals with in his home life and we actually spoke to both Luann Stevens and Zach Guilford about what I'm talking about which is the Mr. Sandman scene where he kind of coaxes her to unlock the door by singing Mr. Sandman and it's so sweet. When I read that scene I thought this could be really good or it could be really bad. I mean, you really, uh, you have to go out there, both he and I, to make that work. And you never know as an actor whether it's going to work. And the editors, you know, select the take. uh, So you don't really know what you're going to see when you see it. And I was nervous about it. And I loved it. I just thought he made it happen. The only thing I've always wondered and you're not supposed to bring stuff like this up, I guess. But how did she lock herself in from the inside? It's not a good thing to say right before you start because, you know, <laughs> they don't have that figured out. So I'm just going to say that she was so nuts that she also installed a lock in there. A little, the little ha- uh, latch kind, you know, old timey, so that she could get away from bad people. So that works for me. I remember with the Mr. Sandman thing, I was like, I read that script. I was like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to say it's singular, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, you're making that serious and such a wuss. Like, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, it's like, everybody's like, oh, my God, when you sang to your grandmother. <laughs> I'm like, oh, good thing I didn't fight too hard on that. Sam, I want to gear shift a little bit and focus on a character who 
initially seems like he's just so beamed in from a like grander, you know, gladiator style take on high school football. And that over the course of the season, the deepening of him and, and you know, how we kind of come to know his whole kind of life and mindset is just really thrilling. Um, again, like Smash Williams, I would even say it was interesting kind of going back and rewatching because it seems to me like it takes a while for the show to get a handle on him. I mean, like, Gaius Charles is just such a personality right from the beginning. And what I find interesting is that, you know, the more we learn about him, the more we see that Smash is a performance. You know, like, this is really a guy named Brian Williams. Brian Williams is someone who carries the weight of the world on his shoulders. I mean, like, he is very conscious in a way that, you know, we get a little bit of this of voodoo, but obviously Smash is a centric character, so we get a lot of it from him. He's conscious of the idea that he may have to carry his family, that, you know, a lot of hope and destiny is resting on him. And, you know, how that plays out is really, really interesting. It's also a character who brings up a lot of the more difficult but also fascinating topics in football in general. I mean, his kind of steroid arc is something that I remember just being so impressed by. I mean, like, to have that on a show that can be very sentimental in in, in wonderful ways about high school football, I mean, that to me is really something that you're just aware of this idea that as someone who was a horrible athlete, I could never understand, but I am fascinated by this idea that, you know, here's someone who's so awesome at football, but still he kind of feels like I need to be awesomer. I need to be better. And the way in which we're so aware that what he's doing is wrong, but we understand it every step of the way. I, you know, I, I just think that that's really, really incredible. I mean, like, uh, you know, what kind of jumped out to you about the, about how we kind of come to understand what's kind of behind Smash's super braggadocious exterior? I think Smash has one of my favorite evolutions over the series, but also in this first season specifically. When you first meet him in the pilot, he just seems like this powerhouse, this larger-than-life guy. So to flash forward to the end of the season and see him taking something to make him more powerful, thereby showing you that his power is somewhat of a facade that he feels that he's not good enough despite being the person who you know smash does this smash does that he's all about himself but you see that you know inside he's got these weaknesses and these doubts and just to have that character start that way and kind of end up that way is just I don't know it's so beautiful and I love it and I love his mother talking about other kind of additional characters that we enjoy I Really, their relationship, one, shows up a different side of Smash. It kind of explains why he feels the pressure he feels and also that he's got a good heart in there, guys, unlike Voodoo. Just kidding. Voodoo. <laughs> but, but seeing his home life is a huge moment in his evolution and that leads into the steroids and therefore makes the steroids make more sense. And I have to say, as someone who watches a lot of sports movies, sports shows, I love them all. They inspire me. They cause me to go on workouts like that I'll do for a week and then quit. They're so great for me. (laughs) But I, when I first saw the steroid storyline, I rolled my eyes a little bit. I wasn't super excited about it because quite frankly, I don't think I've ever seen it done particularly well. But they did not make this a bigger deal than it needed to be. Smash did not 
get kicked off the team and get threatened with legal things. They just kept it very about this kid who just felt this immense pressure to be better. And I think that it arguably is one of the best handlings of a steroid yeah, storyline. Totally. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why I, I just I love this first season and it, it's epic in a way that television could be because with the huge length of episodes, it feels as if it gave the writers the ability to sort of do almost these kind of short stories within the greater story. And that's very true of Smash. I mean, the steroid arc and what it says about him. As you said, Sam, there's no big, huge ending to that. You know, it's not him getting kicked off the team. There's no big speech about, like, you know, how could you do this? You know, the meaning of football and everything. But it's just a great examination of his character. And in kind of the same way... um, Another arc that I think is really interesting with Smash is, you know, Mac McGill, just another one of these characters on Friday Night Lights who starts off as an interesting face in the background and then just becomes someone more interesting and more important to the show. Um, He says something truly terrible and old school racist about, you know, black high school football players versus white high school football players, which starts a controversy that, you know, feels incredibly timely and even though this show is very much set in the days before virality the fact that this show is set in a small town it kind of creates that sense that in the span of a couple of days the whole town kind of turns on him and smash's role in all of that is really interesting and you know what that kind of does for the character is interesting we talked about that a little bit with gaius charles and you know how he kind of felt about uh, that story arc i actually like really enjoyed that storyline you know the whole you know whole waverly storyline and then how that sort of fed into the whole, um, you know, consciousness of Smash in terms of being a black athlete and what that meant and what he stands for and, and all of that. So um, I don't know if Smash ended up with Waverly, but I think she still has a special place in his heart. Let's put it like that. <laughs> Another great thing about that Smash story in particular, Sam, is it brings up something that I want to talk about because... Waverly is a character who I think I had, like, forgotten about since I first saw the show. She is an incredible addition, and the fact that she just kind of disappears, I think, is, like, a huge bummer. I mean, she's definitely... You know, this this total almost person from Mars with regards to football, with regards to Smash. You know, she's just sort of ravenously intellectual. There's that great moment where she's sort of listing off all the African-American poets who inspire her. But what she brings out in Smash is so interesting. And then she's she's never... There's a there's one kind of one final moment with them, and then she's never really mentioned again, which is, you know, again, this is sort of what you deal with in television of this era. It's very network television. You know, you have guest stars. They don't necessarily ultimately fit into the grand design. But it's such a bummer because she's so great, you know? <laughs> she's so great. And I do love that they, they use every opportunity outside of football to make Smash more interesting. They use his family life. They use his girlfriend to kind of move this character forward in ways because Smash on the football field is a very big character unto himself. But to have him even be interested in someone like Waverly instantly makes him more fascinating and more likable, in my opinion. And to watch just like the development of their relationship I wanted them to like end up together. Where did she go? (laughs) 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 Wave, Wave Lee, Asha Davis. Oh my goodness. Um, You know, it's it's funny because, you know, uh, in LA, I see Asha and her family every once in a while. And it's just, 
you know, I loved working with her. So amazing, so talented, so generous. Um, and when we were shooting that, those scenes, you know, we were coming up with like the, the nicknames. And so we were calling ourselves uh, the Waver Lash, Waver Lash, um, uh, or Smash, was Waver Lash or Smashly. I think, I don't know which one rings better, but anyway, we had a, an amazing time working together. Um, hopefully, hopefully Waverly, you know, she's better, you know, I think she went through some rough spots, um, but hopefully Waverly, Waverly Grady's doing her thing. There is that aspect of where the last moment between them, you get this great sense that Smash has changed, or if not changed, he has developed. And I think one thing the show will struggle with next season is this weird kind of almost Heroes Season 2 vibe of kind of telling the same Smash story all over again. But we'll, we'll save that for, for next week. You know, there's this great band out of Dillon, Texas, they're just, they're so talented. They spread this Christian rock music that's so good, and I really wish the world knew more about them. But they're really having a hard time getting the word out, getting people to come to their concerts. One time, only one person came to their concert, and it was really embarrassing. So I called them up, and I recommended that they use Squarespace to build a website so that the entire world can hear their music, can get tickets to their shows, can basically just learn about the glory that is Crucifictorious, led by the great Landry Clark. And if only he used Squarespace to build this website, it's quick, it's easy, he can get the word out, and suddenly they will be on the fast track to fame. So, if you too are in the boat of needing a website, needing to get the word out about something, you can actually start your free trial on Squarespace today at squarespace.com. And if you enter the code BINGE, that's B-I-N-G-E, you're going to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, make your next move. One last thing that I, that I want to mention is that watching Smash's story in this season, Sam, I think I realized something that is really remarkable about the show, and I'm not sure if it was a, a, a planned motif or just reflective of how brilliant these writers were, but if you hear a show is about football, your natural instinct is to say, oh, well, this is going to be just like testosterone fest through and through, you know, like <laughs> the fraternal order of football playing badasses, and that could be a lot of fun. Again, I, I very much enjoy Any Given Sunday, which is very much a, like, badass dudes doing badass things kind of a film, but what strikes me in season one is that every person attached to the football team, in one way or another, they are kind of defined by, and many of them come from these very matriarchal families. I mean, Coach Taylor, mm -hmm. even though he is very much this incredible paternal figure, his family is all women. And he is, you know, he has a great wife. He has a brilliant daughter. Soon enough, there will be another daughter along the way. Smash, as you said, comes from a family of women and his relationship with his sisters and his mom is so important. Matt Saracen, Grandma Saracen just looms so large for him. And he's an example of someone where, you know, his father is just absent, which feels like there's a slight kind of Disney movie quality to how often on this show 
you have these kind of young men who don't necessarily have good father figures. You know, with Smash mm-hmm. also, his father has died. And then just by comparison to that, you have the poor Riggins boys who are just, you know, <laughs> raising each other in a total vacuum and are just very much lost. Which brings me to a character who I just think... Her journey is so compelling. The first time we meet Tyra, and you can even see how there's an aspect to Tyra where I wonder if they weren't expecting what Adrian Palicki was going to bring to the character. Because you can really see a world where she is a totally fun, but slightly more, less motivated figure. I mean, early in the season, she has that weird kind of one-off affair with the guy from Suits, which is is even stranger if you factor in how old she is supposed to be, but we'll, we'll kind of, you know, leave that alone. But it just seems as if we see so much of her home life and, you know, the, the, the Colettes, I just think, are like some of the best running figures in the show. And a lot of the show is her kind of both discovering kind of a new gear in her own life and, you know, ultimately how that relates to another character who will become hugely important, uh, Landry Clark. Um, How do you kind of feel about, like, these are two characters who are so far from the football center of Dylan and yet they become so important to the show. Uh, What kind of struck you about how that dynamic kind of plays out over the course of the season? Well, I like that you mention the female aspect of all of these families because there's a ton of very strong women on the show. But the thing about Tyra's family is that she is a very strong woman who comes about because she's surrounded by some not so strong women. <laughs> and so <laughs> I like watching her kind of figure out how to do things on her own with the help of some people like Landry, as you mentioned. They, their relationship is purely platonic, at least on her end in, the, <laughs> in this season. And it is, it's such an interesting pairing because aside from the fact that neither of them is too involved in the football of it all, they really have nothing in common. Mm-hmm. Landry, like we rarely see his home life, but we know he comes from a good home. He's this kind of really smart kid who just wants to get into a good school. He has is full of wit and loves Matt Saracen. And then there's Tyra, who dated Tim Riggins, sleeps with Smash, doesn't care about her schoolwork, <laughs> doesn't care about football, doesn't care about much, though we will see her kind of through her relationship with him and through her relationship also with Tammy Taylor, once they get linked up, kind of learn to like certain things and believe in herself and find her passions. And I think matching the two of them up was really just a very smart way to kind of help pull Tyra out of this world where she very easily could have gone on to become a Mindy or her mother. But by pairing her with Landry and, of course, eventually with Tammy – she's able to see what her options really are in the world and just be freaking awesome. I love Tyra so She's much. great. She's great. And, you know, you're right to say that um, the pairing of her and Tammy is something that I, I just always think, I mean, I can't directly relate in, in my own personal experience to what it's like to be a super cool football player. But, <laughs> like, you know, for me, the parts of the show that are about Tyra wanting to go to college and the mm-hmm. fact that, like, the heroic figure in her her life is a guidance counselor. I, I just you don't really get a lot of shows that try to dramatize that, and it's something that is so central to a lot of people's high school experience. And I just think that you know, there's this incredible quality of 
Tyra kind of knows that she's starting from behind in a way that, you mm-hmm. know, this idea of wanting to go to college is going to be very difficult for her. And just tracking that is something that I think is so great. And you kind of mentioned, um, you know, her relationship with her mom. And mm-hmm. one of the things I find interesting is that as much as the Colettes, her sister Mindy and her mom, they're they're very over the top in some respects. And, you know, there's almost this, this aspect of them just being like these characters who just seem to come from almost like a farce version of Friday Night Lights, by which I mean they're very entertaining. I mean that as a compliment. You know, I love how the show can always... Keep in mind the uh, the idea that, you know, these are real characters with real emotions. Um, we talked to Adrian Palicki about uh, one of the most important scenes in the Colette family history, uh, which is uh, Tyra asking her mom to choose her and not the latest, you know, total chump ball that she has kind of fallen for. And uh, I thought that what she had to say about what that scene accomplishes for Tyra is really interesting. I think I, I, that scene where, you know, she beats the crap out of her stepdad or you know mom's boyfriend was a moment that I loved because it was the first time we ever saw like the reasoning behind all of it you know what I mean we never really knew never could really like fall in love with Tyra before that moment because we never knew really knew why she was the way she was right and there was something about her deciding for me anyways in that moment that she wasn't going to be like her mom and then making her mother choose between you know that a-hole and herself and you really don't know what her mom's going to choose and there's something really powerful about that I also really love what this scene accomplishes for her mother because you know I stated only minutes ago that she comes from weak women which maybe isn't fair because I think this is proof that her mom has had a very difficult life but There's a reason why Tyra is strong, and it's because her mother is strong deep down. And watching her mother choose her daughter is such a huge moment for both of their characters. And there's that wonderful scene that I have rewatched so many times, I lost count, where there is a father-daughter dance. And her mom takes Tyra because she has been the father in her life as well. Which the more I talk, the more I hate myself for calling her weak because she's not. She's such a strong character. And watching her choose her daughter and just show her that, yes, this was the life I had, but it's not the life you have to have. And I support you no matter what is just one of the most moving things this show has done. And it's done with a character that we kind of barely knew at that point. And it Mm -hmm. just shows what this show can do with literally anyone. The thing is, you know, she's weak and she's strong. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. you know, she is flawed and the show tracks those flaws. But there's just something about how adeptly a Friday Night Lights can deal with family dynamics that you, when you see all sides of a character like that, again, we're talking about Mama Colette, who's great, is maybe the 15th or 16th quote-unquote most important character on the show, <laughs> certainly with regards to like the greater narratives of season one. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that scene is so moving. Um, and then in turn, one of the interesting things about this sort of emergence quality of these characters is that someone like Landry, who is very much a wonderful comedic relief for a lot of the season. And a lot of that just comes from the fact that Jesse Plemons is a supernatural actor. He actually looks like he's in high school. I mean, like, and I I mean that as a huge compliment. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, there's just a wonderful gawky side to him, which mixes with his brazen self-confidence, which is quite hilarious. One thing that uh, I want to just call out with regards to Landry is... 
season one, Landry's an interesting character, and he he shifts within the show in so many interesting ways that that I'm excited to dig into. But in this season, there's almost this quality of him almost kind of like Frank Underwood style, like floating above the show in a way. There's a moment where he says something very meta, which is, uh, I'm tired of being a supporting actor and I'm ready to be a leading man. Um, (laughs) But there's also the great moment where he has to, and this is the kind of thing that the show could always do, but given all the episodes, there's time for stuff like this. The episode where he has to kind of like tutor Tim Riggins, essentially. (sighs) And what what he's teaching him about is of mice and men. And I mean, that whole scene is so great and their pairing is so great. But what's great is that like Landry seems to clearly understand that the story of, of Mice and Men, the story of these two friends and of betrayal, directly relates to Tim Riggins and what's going on with him and Street at that time. And I just think yeah. that having a character like that, who again, on any other football show, you would think, well, this is just, this is a guy who's, you, you know, we're going to give him like one line per episode and nothing else. I just think that that emergence is a really wonderful part of uh, this first season. I think the fact that they did not continue the Landry tutoring Tim is the greatest travesty of this entire I know, series. I know. Like spin-off of this show that could never be <laughs> would have been like Landry each week like Landry tutors another character and like you know tries to explain to them like you know this week he tutors Lila and says like have you read the Scarlet Letter? Like you know <laughs> what you're going through what you're going through is is very common. Sam, I, I want to just shift gears a little bit because uh, you know we've talked about the kids. Kids are great. Mm-hmm. But you know who's really great is adults. And Tammy and Eric Taylor, I don't even know where to start with them. There's so many perfect the moments. Best. There's so many perfect moments between them in this first season. What kind of jumps out to you when you think about just the journey that they go on in season one and how they always have each other's back, but there's also just a constant push-pull between them in a way that feels so real and also quite inspirational to me. Yeah, there are so many specific moments we can talk about. I think we should just start at the base, the foundation of why this is such a great couple. And it's something both actors, Kyle Chandler and Connie Britton, have talked about before, about how they knew that these two characters were never going to get divorced. And that was a huge factor into how they played every scene and into how they were able to make this feel so authentic. And when we spoke to Connie Britton, she talked specifically about her conversations with Kyle and the fact that they looked at each other and said, even if they write that we have an affair, we're not going to do it. Like <laughs> they were <laughs> fully in on this relationship. And it gives you some great insight into why they were able to make this couple everything that it was. You know, Kyle and I, when we first met, you know, we just, and we met on the set. I mean, we, not, we had not even met in advance of shooting um, but we just, you know, hit it off immediately and really, really liked each other. And even more important than that, I think we really um, found very early that we share sort of similar values and similar ways of looking at life. And, um, you know, that so and, and we were and then the other thing is, you know, we were really passionate about this opportunity. We were really excited about it. And, um, and Peter Berg was excited too, you know, as I said, how he really wanted to, and he went, he really wanted to give these, the women a voice and particularly Tammy a voice, but also I was like <laughs> determined, you know, I was rabid about it. I'm like, if I'm this, if I'm deciding to do this show, 
you know, this is going to be, this is going to be a good character. Um, and so, you know, but, but we were, but we, we felt very strongly about it. We were, you know, like I said, and it all goes back to Peterborough. I, I really give him credit for so much because there was so much passion, you know, there was so much passion about these characters that we were playing in this world that we were creating. And, um, so, you know, when Kyle and I got together, like we felt like very strongly about the things that we felt strongly about, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, we both felt very strongly that, the, that these, that this couple, you know, we were, we were like, we're never letting the writers have us have an affair. Like if they try to do it, we're not going to do it. You know, <laughs> so like, you know, and, and we told them so, you know, and, and there were, and, and that wasn't probably easy for our writers because it's, it, it, you know, if you look in most TV shows, I mean, eventually somebody's going to have an affair or whatever. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's scary for writers to, to be trying to write a couple that is actually getting along with each other, you know, whereas the conflict, I mean, that's always the issue. You know, they think there's not a story unless there's, there's like some really major conflict going on or whatever, uh, you know, and, and look, that works very well a lot of times, but what we, we thought would be really interesting and what we thought this would be the perfect um, format for on the show was to actually show what most couples go through, which is just trying to be partners to each other and, and, you know, get through the day and, you know, they need each other and they also like really love each other. And that's, uh, that can look a lot of different ways. You know, it doesn't always, it's not like they're all lovey-dovey on each other all the time. And, and, and it's, but it's more that there is a deep, profound connection there that takes many different forms, but also has, there's an immediacy to it because they are just trying to get through the day. And, you know, the other thing that was really important to us was creating this partnership together. And, you know, we were like, you know, look, these two people are, are partners and, uh, you know, we're not, this isn't a big, this isn't a show about some big business, you know, or like a law firm or whatever, you know, this is a show about, um, very simple people trying to, um, get through their life in a way that feels valuable and meaningful. And, you know, so the, we decided these two people were going to be partners to each other in that. What's great about, just how how they established that is that you know again on so many other shows on very good shows if you have a married couple the natural inclination is to say you know how do we add a problem to this do we bring in mm -hmm. a, a third love interest you know do we do what the OC seem to do constantly to their kind of central married couple in seasons two and three and what's great is that when you say like no we are not going to do that this is going to be a married couple who whatever their flaws and whatever their struggles they're united then the drama has to come from something different and something that's maybe not as sort of over the top or as soap operatic and i love the decision to make Tammy an active member of the school and how that kind of sets up this interesting interplay between them is very interesting i do think that in this really lovely way it makes quite personal this idea of, you know, 
they're athletes, but they're also students, and the push and pull between the school and the athletic program is something that is always quite interesting on the show. You know, it also brings this idea of their career into play. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I think is so interesting about this show is that as much as it is beautiful and explosions in the sky soundtracked in its vision of this football team as this angelic squadron of people who can unite despite their their differences. Um, at a certain point, Coach Taylor is a really good football coach and like that will bring some interesting professional opportunities his way. And mm-hmm. the way the show deals in this season with the offer from TMU and with how that will affect their family and with just the real conversations that they have about that, I just think are really lovely and very subtle. Uh, I mean, like Sam, there's that great moment, maybe my favorite shot of the whole show, actually, where they've kind of had this conversation about Austin and this conversation about TMU. And they are kind of holding each other. They're staring into the mirror. They are just like the tableau of like (laughs) the perfect married couple and all kinds of just beautiful thoughts come to to your mind. But then how that scene plays out is just so subtle and so effective. Uh, Do you know the scene I'm talking about? Did that kind of jump out to you? It's my favorite I love you of the series. Oh, wait, should I say that? Oh, you know what? I'm saying it. I'm going with it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I'm just, I'm committing here, guys. Uh, there, It's this beautiful moment where almost seemingly out of nowhere, like Coach Taylor just takes the opportunity to wrap his arms around his wife and say, I love you. I respect you. Um. I'm proud of you. I'm in love with you completely. I remember, because it did feel so out of the blue, it's not like they were having this crazy moment. I remember literally going, oh, like (laughs) literally just reacting to it. It's like, oh, where did this come from? And you see Tammy do something similar. She kind of like grabs his hand and is just like, oh, that's so sweet to hear. But then proving just how strong she is and, you know, proving that this is such a partnership just very sweetly says, I'm not going to Austin. And it's this wonderful moment where it feels so authentic. And it's I just love that they didn't have her crumble at this amazing declaration of love. And instead, she's like, that's great. Love you, too. I'm not going to Austin, and it kind of proves your point of where I love the idea that Coach Taylor represents more of the kind of professional football side of this show, and she represents the personal, and she's putting her family first, and also she's pregnant, which That's... we don't know yet. <laughs> ah! I mean, and, and what's great about that is there's an interesting aspect to Friday Night Lights where knowing that it was always kind of on the bubble, or at least that it certainly was not necessarily getting raised that at the time would have made it a shoe-in for more seasons. Whenever you see a season finale, I always think it's it's worth just like imagining like how would I feel if that had been the end of the show? And mm-hmm. there's a great sense to where the finale leaves the Taylors. They are pregnant and Coach Taylor in a victorious mood is sort of saying like, you know, we we will stay in Dylan. And Tammy's reaction to that, I just think it's this beautiful, open-ended, and bittersweet moment of saying, like, no, we will figure this out, but we're not going to take the easy way out here. And, you know, we'll figure mm-hmm. this out for our family. And I just think that that's a lovely spot 
to leave them if that had been where we left them. You know, this sense of like, well, okay, nothing is solved. Nothing's ever solved forever, but they have the strength to kind of overcome whatever they need to solve. And I just think that that's great. And man, like Kyle Chandler and Connie Britton, they make these characters seem so gosh darn into each other. And like, you know, (laughs) to do that with characters who are married and who are almost kind of these very political figures within the context Mm -hmm. of the show. Like, you know, they have this public face. They have to be united. They have so many struggles. It's such a multifaceted chemistry that they have that just on a scene to scene level is always astounding. Yeah. And I think what really speaks to that chemistry is, you know, we talked about the I love you in the mirror scene. We talked about Coach finding out Tammy's pregnant, which is just ridiculously great. But those are all kind of big, epic moments. I think the even more impressive stuff that they do this season is that they make that chemistry and that love shine through, through the stupidest arguments you could imagine (laughs) through, you know, to this day, I will always remember the under the table argument is one of the greatest things when Tammy learns last minute that she's going to have a house full of football players and she has to buy 5,000 racks of ribs and they're all pigs and (laughs) Eric didn't give her enough warning about it. And it's just this beautiful husband-wife moment where she's annoyed, he's annoyed, but there is still no doubt in your mind that these two people love each other so sincerely. And that's why you, I cannot name another show where my favorite scenes are watching my favorite couple argue. Yes, Because usually (laughs) I'm so scared that that argument is going to turn more serious, that someone's going to have an affair. And this was just such a solid, solid relationship that you never worried about that. And that was another thing when we talked to Connie Britton, she mentioned the under the table fight and a couple of the other moments that she really enjoyed as part of this couple. Certainly. I mean, one of my favorite scenes was the one, I think it was even in season one, where we were throwing a barbecue and, and I go out under the table and he, Tammy and Coach have like sort of a fight under the table and I'm basically like, under here I'm pissed. Up there I'm going to be smiling for you, but down here I'm pissed because like, I'm like, I'm like, your players are pigs or whatever, you know. Then, he, you know, scenes to me that, because we just had so much fun and, and there was another scene um Oh my gosh. And we just cracked each other up so much. And like, you know, I, I can try to retell it. There's a scene where, um, Kyle, where, um, uh, Saracen is over with our daughter and, uh, and they're watching TV and coach goes in and basically breaks it up. And then he like, and I'm sort of like just so annoyed with him. And he looks at me and he's like, they had a blanket. And I said, you're an, and I said, you're an idiot. (laughs) <laughs> and we, I, I, I don't even remember where it all came from, but like, we just thought it was the funniest thing in the world that like, he's so mad because they have a blanket and he like loses it. And then I'm just, and I just basically call him an idiot. And that to, uh, to, to Kyle and me were, was like the epitome of our relationship in real life. He's <laughs> just like, so ridiculous and I'm just like you're an idiot (laughs) but we just that that scene for whatever reason we died through the whole thing like we just thought it was the funniest thing ever 
I can remember the first time I ever saw anything in Friday Night Lights. I can remember the the, the first scene, the first sequence. I can remember where I was. I, I can remember who I was then. I was uh, on a spring break trip with some of my fraternity brothers. Ooh. I will not say anything else about it besides that it was <laughs> on a cruise and we were way less cool than we thought we were. But it just so she happened... legally cannot say anything yeah. else about that trip. <laughs> Uh, but I can remember we were sort of like uh, lying around, turn on the little TV set that they have in a cruise ship that usually only gets like two channels. And one of them is just the inside cruise TV that just shows you all the cool shops that as a college student, you definitely can't afford to go to. But one of them was NBC and it was playing. We turned it on and it was the scene in the Mud Bowl episode where mm-hmm. Coach Taylor is talking to the opposing coach and they're, you know, he's kind of trying to get him to play the game in this sort of field that they have built. And I remember just being so immediately enthralled by it. You know, that's this kind of very pivotal scene where these two larger-than-life figures, these two coaches are having a conversation. And I remember just thinking, like, God, what is this show? The look of it is so unlike anything else that was on television at that time. So I started watching it. There I was on a cruise ship, could have done anything, was there watching Friday Night Lights, a show deep into its first season that I knew nothing about besides football. And (laughs) watching the Mud Bowl game, I remember just thinking like, God, this is like the D-Day sequence in Saving Private Ryan. Like, this is just so visceral and so immediate. And I didn't know who any of the characters were, but I just felt so completely, like, you know, I understood right away, like, what was at stake here? And this, this sense of, like, the whole town kind of, like, being behind them. And it's just so astonishing. I, I, I still think sometimes that that is my favorite of the many, many football games that we see in the show. But, you know, that episode is, is interesting, Sam, because it also has a scene that is very hard to watch and that, mm-hmm. you know, sets up a lot of things in the show going forward. Um, we're kind of cutting between the mud bowl moment and just this agony and ecstasy of the elements and of everyone just like going totally wild with uh, you know Tyra and she's waiting for Landry and the assault happens and it's just a really brutal brutal scene that is is hard to watch and will kind of play into where the show goes forward um, you know what's your kind of take on that episode and on you know that kind of sequence which just it, it feels like it stands out to me in this first season in, in some interesting ways. I feel like the more we talk about this season, the more I'm like, man, watching people run through mud is really moving. <laughs> Not it's, only is it difficult, but it's powerful. It's, it's a great, and again, just like, I mean, this must have been just either fun or horrible for the actors to be just, all right, like, it's, it's, it's another mud day. <laughs> No, but I, I fully agree with you. Mud Bowl is one of the standout episodes of this season, both for what happens within it and also the way that they shoot it and cut it together. And it's just so powerful. I mean, to see the lengths that this team is willing to go through and just, you know, at this point, they're getting so close to going to state, which, as we all know, is all anyone in Texas wants is to go to state and so to watch them really put it on the line combined with the rain and the mud which half the time I would say 
is a cheap way to try to make something more dramatic, but it just so works in this circumstance, and it feels like something that would just happen. I don't know. I don't know if a team would ever just, like, build a field out of the middle of a cow pasture, but you know what? <laughs> I believed it, and I was in it, and it made me want it for them that much more. And to cut back and forth, I'm often not a fan of shows cutting from powerful moments to other things because I think it pulls you out of it a little bit. And again, like, just to think about how democratic the show feels, to be cutting from this moment that is a brilliant version of the kind of, you know, sports movie coming from behind, whole team is there, thrilling moment of sports triumph to something that is so personal and so horrifying for one of the characters is just, you know, an interesting example of what the show could do at this moment. I just wanted to, to, to briefly call this out. Julie Taylor, who, minor spoiler alert, uh, will still be in high school in the fourth season of this show. At one point in this season, she is signing her driver's ed form. And now maybe, maybe her birthday's early. Maybe in Texas, 14-year-olds take driver's head. I don't know. Just putting <laughs> it out there. At one point, she is also said to be a sophomore, which... Just to go back to your theory, could be that some characters are getting held back and we just don't we just don't don't hear about that. <laughs> but also Landry is said to be in calculus. And if he's in calculus as a freshman, he's a genius. He is like, I mean, he is going to like, you know, fix the space-time continuum using his uh, brilliance in uh, mathematics and physics. So just want to call that out. We'll be exploring this more in, in future episodes. But some interesting tantalizing bits and bobs about exactly how old characters are here in season one. <laughs> bits and bobs. Oh, I feel like the last thing we just have to talk about is actual state itself. You know, they spoiler, they get to state where they are playing freaking voodoo for the championship, for what they've been striving for. It's I particularly love spoiler alert. They win. They win state. I'm just putting that out there. I particularly love it for Matt Saracen's character because we've talked about how he goes into the game in the pilot and proves that he might have a natural ability, but that's about it. He doesn't have quarterback instincts. He doesn't know the plays. He has all these issues that he has to figure out. And so for him to be able to take this team and lead them to a championship is just such a great evolution for that character. Not to mention Grandma Saracen gets to be super stoked in the stands, which I always love. But there is there's also a lot of drama surrounding their stint in state because they do all find out about Coach going to TMU or potentially going to TMU, which he does by the end of it kind of decide to go. But it makes the game that much more dramatic because do they want to play for this guy who might be leaving them? And so I just, I think it adds, it almost, they didn't need to add a layer of drama. We, like, state was already going to be, the stakes were already about as high as you can get. This is the thing they've talked about from the pilot. This team, they've got to get to state, they have to win state. But to add that extra layer of, A, you're going up against voodoo, so boo, and B, is Coach Taylor the person we want to win this for? Just made it that much more interesting, in my opinion. But Darren, totally. how do you feel? I mean, Sam, this episode is interesting because in a way that will reverberate throughout the show going forward, this is kind of the moment when the show 
manages to simultaneously indulge and challenge its most kind of old-fashioned ideas. I mean, like, they're at state. They win state. There are so many ways to do that that would feel unearned or feel sentimental. And it's easy to be sentimental. It's also easy to be cynical. And to do something that's right in the middle and to create the feeling that these are guys who are earning this and that this is a town that is earning it. It's something so remarkable. Um, as far as like me watching the pilot and crying, it really starts with uh, when Coach Taylor tells the guys, you know, that they're down. Uh, the Panthers are looking at, you know, not just a loss at state, but a really brutal loss. He gives them a pump-up speech, but it's not a, a typical kind of a pump-up speech because he doesn't really talk about the game. What he talks about is the people, the people around them. When Jason Street went down the first game of the season, everybody wrote us off. Everybody. And yet here we are at the championship game. 40,000 people out there have also written us off. There are a few out there who do still believe in you. If you'll never give up on you. You go back out on the field, those are the people I want in your minds. Those are the people I want in your hearts. Every man at some point in his life is going to lose a battle. He's going to fight and he's going to lose. But what makes him a man is that in the midst of that battle, he does not lose himself. This game is not over. This battle is not over. So let's hear it one more time. Together. Clear eyes, full hearts. Let's go! While he's saying that, we're, we see all these people, and again, just the show's generosity with its supporting cast is so important because we've met all these people. We've seen all of them over the course of the season. We see that like it takes a village not just to raise this team, but to raise every single person on this team. And I just think that that's so beautiful, and to have that happen... But then you also have, when they return to Dylan, and it's one of the most beautiful parts of any TV show ever, the parade through Dylan is so interesting because you're so happy, but the song that's playing Devil Town, which also plays uh, at the end of the second episode, it adds this interesting little layer to it also. You know, there's those lyrics like, you know, I was living in a devil town, didn't know it was a devil town, all my friends were vampires. It's just a great way to be like, you're so happy, but you're also very aware that, like, you know, there's there's just a nice edge to that. This sense of, like, you know, everyone's very happy now, and that's great. But we've seen these guys go through hell with this town. We've seen the for sale signs on the front uh, lawn of a lot of these people. And so to do all of that and just end on such an emotional high note, I mean, I don't know if it gets better. I don't know, like, there are, there are seasons of this show that cohere together better just as, as stories and as kind of statements, but 
like, boy, the closing 10 minutes or so of this final, of, of this first season finale is just incredible. <laughs> well, and yeah, and if you want to talk about crying, uh, when I watch the literal final 30 seconds, minute, whatever it is, Coach Taylor walks in and Jason Street has kind of filled his role a little bit. You know, they know that Coach is planning to leave, so Jason is sitting there giving the talk that I feel like, you know, you mentioned Devil Town, and it's this interesting thing where they're celebrating a win, but also that win therefore means the expectation put upon them next year is that much greater. And it is a great thing, but it's also the worst thing that you could have done. Because yes. now, yeah. Yes. And so it's this great, and that's kind of what Street is saying to them of like, enjoy this. And then we got to get back to work yeah, like, because like, we have stuff to do. They literally just, the whole season that has been leading up to this, and they get a montage to celebrate. And then mm-hmm. it's like, all right, guys, well, I think what Treat says is anything less than another state championship is completely unacceptable. And it's just like, man, like right back into it. And I, I think that, you know, to have this moment that is sadly they don't really make sports movies as often as they used to and like even when Friday Night Lights was on that trend had already happened so really to me sometimes I think that Friday Night Lights as a TV show might just be like 40 of the best sports movies ever made in in this century and to have this great sports movie moment of success and then it's like all right, guys back to work like that is to me that gets to the core of what makes this show truly inspiring you know it's not inspiring because it's saying like this is awesome and you're awesome. It's inspiring because it's saying, like, do the work, put in the work, have respect to the people around you. I'm, I'm starting to tear up just thinking about it. <laughs> Darren's making himself cry with his own speech. Oh, my God. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. When they say that and the look on Coach Taylor's face, I mean, you know. Uh, but when Coach walks in and they all applaud him, like, please, it's so good. Yeah. Now I'm going to cry. Yeah, I mean, if that were the end of Friday Night Lights, that would be one of the most beautiful endings in television Mm -hmm. history. Fortunately for us, uh, it's not. And, uh, you know, Sam, uh, we're excited to kind of keep this ball going next week. We're going to be talking about season two, a very different season, uh, and a season that has a lot of things that are good about it, has some other things people have talked about that don't necessarily work as well. Uh, I'm excited Mm -hmm. to dive into it. I I think it's going to be a very different conversation than this one, but there are a lot of interesting layers to kind of peel off in where they took the show after after the first season. Right. We'll cry just as much, but for different reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Tragically, tragically, they did not just make season two into the Eric Taylor show, but but that would have been great, too. If if it had just been a weird, like, public access uh, TV show with, like, Kyle Chandra being very upset about uh, technological matters, as he is when they do the Eric Taylor show in season one, that would have maybe been about as good as some of the things that happened in season two. But we're going to get to that next week. Yes. For now, you guys can send us your comments and questions to binge at EW.com. Or you can tweet us at at Darren Franich and at Sam Highfill. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes, do all the wonderful things. And next week, we will see you guys to talk all about season two. 